I'm Dr. Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is The Most Important Medicine. If you don't know me, I'm a licensed psychologist, trainer, and consultant, and on this podcast, we're here to discuss how talking about trauma and providing a space for people to share their experiences is how we transform medicine. I work with physicians and healthcare organizations on the daily, and every time we have these conversations and I even hint at the discussion about trauma, I am met with one of two things either intense, curious, compassionate, or a whole lot of skepticism. And that's what we're here for, to make understanding and discussing trauma accessible, and even more important, how to respond to trauma so that you feel competent as a physician. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and leave with tangible tools you can use today. So today I am here with my special guest, Dr. Diana Landonio. Dr. Landonio is a urologist from Los Angeles, California, and she treats patients medically and surgically. She is one of the few female urologists in the U.S. who is both Latin and female, which makes her, get this, one of the 0.5% of urologists that are Latina. That's amazing. Um, She's also a physician coach and founder of Physician Coach Support as well as a speaker who is passionate about self-care, advocacy for physicians, and physician burnout. Welcome, Diana. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. This is just so fun. I'm so excited to be here and really just have an amazing conversation with you. We were obviously talking a little bit before the show started, and just I'm just getting so excited because it's going to be really just some powerful conversations and just the intersection of your specialty, my specialty, and just humanity and how this affects so many people. So I'm so excited about this. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, well, I gave kind of a formal introduction. How would you introduce yourself to people? No, I mean, I think it's amazing. And I think, yeah, you know, you've really touched on the roles. We all have many roles. Sure, they're not my true identity, but, you know, they are the roles of the ones that we go through life and they're, you know, not forever. They're temporary and they may change. But yeah, this current role, yeah, I agree with what you said. I appreciate it. Yes, I'm a urologist. That is my day job, but I have other roles. I'm a mom. I have two kids. Plus, I do all the other things for advocacy, for wellness you know, also on the extra time, like, you know, sort of that third job, which is like super fun and amazing because this stuff really matters. You know, we as physicians touch so many lives. You know, many of us may have 3,000, 5,000 patients that we see in our panel, whatever you call it. And that not only affects that person, but the ripple effect of like the family, the community, you know, it really does affect other people and how we treat a patient really even, you know, they all leave feeling grateful, hopeful, happy, and then they're going to be either very nice, very kind to the front desk that check them in, or they're going to be nasty and rude because, you know, whatever you give out, it comes back and then they ripple itself back. So if we're kind and nice and, you know, give them the space to, to talk about things that are difficult and you do that with empathy and holding that space for them, they're kind of actually do that to other people they interact with in the day. So our job is really powerful. It's really, you know, not because we are superheroes and, you know, none of that, but I'm saying powerful of like the impact we can give. And what I mean by that is that we hope the impact is positive and it's very difficult to have that positive impact in others when kind of going back to the beginning, we are so burned out. Burnout is real in every, you know, specialty job, of course, but As physicians, we're getting up to 60% in some of the specialties. That is a very high number. That is really scary because when you're burned out, you're apathetic, you're 
feel depersonalized, you know, you make errors, and you're just not going to be present to pick up on all the cues, all the things that you're telling us as patients, we just cannot hear it. Because then we can also not give when we're so empty. When we're empty, you cannot give love and patience, you're irritable, you're cranky, you're like, you don't have time for that. And that happens because it's burnout, then we're burned out that cycles into depression and 25% of physicians are depressed. 13% 13% are suicidal. I mean, they're really thinking how are they going to end their life that day? That is extremely scary. 19% of obstetricians and gynecologists are suicidal. I mean, that's mind-blowing. And more than 400 physicians per year complete suicide. I mean, that number is staggering and it keeps happening every single year, every single year, every single year. We're not getting better. This was happening before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Definitely now it's you know amplified and not only the ones we're losing, we already have a shortage. We have a shortage of physicians. We have a shortage of specialists. You're waiting for me for months. And then now we're losing them. We're like either, you know, completing suicide or we're just leaving medicine. So we want to really bring back the love of, you know, our profession, that we're healers, we're teachers, to be excited, to really bring the joy and the light into, you know, physicians' eyes so they can be excited about being healers and teachers. Okay. There's like, we could wrap that in a bow and put it out, but there's so much you said, I want to circle back to being healers and teachers. And you said, okay. you know, there are physicians that have thousands of people on their caseload that they can make a difference in. So I wonder, somebody might be listening and thinking like, well, how does trauma or adversity show up in your field of specialty? So can you, do you have some examples of how trauma shows up in urology and, and how you approach the those patients? I think that's a great question to me. And I don't think it's like it shows up in my specialty. I think it shows up in all specialties. I mean, yeah. it, just, it really is. I mean, and you know more of trauma than I do, but like the adverse childhood childhood event study, you know, you, you probably are more knowledgeable, you know, so many, I think it's, you know, I, I forget the exact number of people that they followed and surveyed with Kaiser mm-hmm. Permanente and the numbers are staggering. You know, it's like 60% of people have had some type of trauma, whether it was they saw violence, it was alcohol abuse, their family was incarcerated, 25% of women have been abused Mm -hmm. sexually. I mean, these are very high numbers. And this is not just, you know, it's anybody and everybody. So, I mean, this also actually includes physicians, you know, we're not exempt from this trauma. This includes the lady at McDonald's, this includes, you know, everybody, right? Like the lady at Target, whoever. So whoever we interact with, they are carrying this trauma. And then we just pretend that, you know, we, nobody is, but we all are one way or another. We are not exempt from it. I'm not exempt from it. Other people are not. So we just are not really taught, honestly, in medical school at all, like anything about trauma-informed care. Mm-hmm. I mean, this to me is something kind of like new, like what trauma-informed care? Like what? Amazing. I mean, yes, I cannot treat you if I don't acknowledge some type of trauma because we all have it. And that shows up in triggers. That shows up in the way that people react to many things you know it could be obviously you just even the person like I show up and I remind them of something subconsciously and then they're like guarded and they they probably can't even figure out what it is about me or my colleague that is putting them not at ease and it could just be the smell it could be like the facial expression and Again, we're you not aware of it. You mentioned before, Diana, like even people like they come into your office and it could be how they get greeted at the front desk, how they get treated by someone, right? I mean, 
across multiple domains of clinic, of staff, how the patients, yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, when they come to see a physician, I mean, they even just have the trauma of, let's say, past experiences of, like, bad, you know, healthcare and medicine and medical experiences. Just that trauma of having had a bad experience with, again, maybe it was a check-in person, maybe it was a hospitalization, it was traumatic. That itself is, like, trauma in itself. And then you come back to the, to the, doctor's office and then you're kind of relieving just that trauma itself and we're not even talking about the sexual abuse or the alcohol abuse that they you know that they had to experience with their family members so i mean this is a whole lot of stuff and of course yes absolutely we're actually not well equipped to to deal with it and that's absolutely so fantastic why you're helping so many physicians and people in medicine to really say okay well like we kind of have to acknowledge this elephant in the room because it's here and you can't stop pretending that it is not here because it affects how they make decisions, how they are compliant with things that we do, because trauma and fear really affects decisions you make. And really every patient that I see, and you know, I do work at a cancer center, but I don't do cancer. I'm a general urologist, so I do a lot of everything, but it doesn't matter if it's cancer or not. Really the, like, Every patient that comes in actually has a fear. They really do. They don't say it verbally, but they do. They're afraid that this could be cancer. They're afraid that it's going to hurt. They're afraid that, you know, what does this mean? Do they need surgery? I mean, they have so many fears that they don't tell you verbalized. But if you are present and calm, you can pick up on all these minute changes in their eyes, their squint, their posture, their hands. I mean, so much information that they're giving non-verbally. Yes, go ahead. I want to pause and I really want people to hear what Diana just said, right? People come in to see their physician and they're scared. And it might be fear of the procedure, fear of outcome. It might be fear of just not understanding or fear that maybe my physician isn't telling me everything or I don't understand what's going on. And, And what she's also saying, which is so important, is they will show it to you if you're paying attention in very small ways. Oh, yeah. It's like, so, like that's a magic to me of medicine, like l- picking up and all the nonverbal cues and like the energy. I mean, I just feel it. And some people can't as well or don't want to, but like, if you really tap into it, it's like, it, it tells you everything. You know, you don't have to tell me verbally. I can feel it. I can sense it. I can see like little changes. Um, so if yeah. You taught that, if you weren't taught that in medicine, in medical school, how have you picked that up as a physician? How, how have you really tuned into that to be like, oh gosh, there's, there's fear in the room or there's trauma in the room. How, how have you done that? Yeah, that, that is a great question because it's not taught. I mean, medicine is like an art and a science, you know, mm-hmm. so there's, I think that's the art and not the science because we can yeah. learn all the charts and we can learn to be technicians of surgery, but then there's an art. And some people want to do the art and some people don't want to do the art. But I think when you combine art and science, like again, magic happens. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I was sort of not taught that, but I think in a way that really goes into like a little bit of intuition mm-hmm. and intuition is not something that only women have or special people have. Everybody has intuition mm-hmm. and intuition is really paying attention to the feeling again is not being up here in the brain logical and thinking about it. It's like about a feeling, a sense, mm-hmm. a gut reaction, a, like a tension in your body that you feel that tells you something is not right, something is off, something doesn't feel good, and it's not about thinking it. It's about feeling it. 
and everybody's intuitive and that's really connecting to truly like your spiritual your soul like a higher source and it's not about religion it's just about a higher connection and purpose and you really have to in a way cultivate that you have to spend the time to cultivate that you know that knowing and acknowledging it and trusting it you got to trust your intuition and people in medicine get very uncomfortable because if it's not palpable touchable graphable it doesn't exist you can't x-ray for it you can't see it in an ultrasound but but it's there you know and and people come all the time this is a great thing that you're talking about ct scan my patients come all the time i have pain here it hurts here and what's going on? And, you know, can you do a CT scan, an MRI, all this stuff? And I'm like, sure, we could do that. And actually they have done that. But we're not going to find it because it's not like physical. Like it's not some tumor that is growing. This is actually some, again, kind of some trauma, pain that you're carrying, that you haven't like processed or moved through your body. And it's showing up as like a, a sign, a big sign, a symptom, a pain. And we're not going to find it, but I know it's real. I acknowledge that you have pain. I acknowledge that there's something happening there that is real, but we're not going to find it in the test, which is good and bad. Wow. This is so important, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I, I think you said it earlier, not all physicians know what it means to understand trauma, to be trauma informed. And so now you're sitting with a patient. Mm-hmm. And you know that they have real pain. Oh, of course, it's real. They're saying, find it, show me a test, like, so I can see it. And what you're saying is I have to trust my intuition as a physician. I have to just pause and be able to say to my patient, what you're experiencing is real, but we might not be able to see it. It's Correct. something that hasn't been worked through. Wow. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's really it's, you know, it's challenging for everybody, not only the doctor, but like the patient, like, no, like you have to find it. Like, like, show me the proof. And I'm like, the proof is not visible. It's, it's, uh, it's an energy. It's a feeling. I mean, I have so many examples of this and, you know, you asked me how it shows up in urology. And again, it's not in just my specialty, but, uh, and I'm not, I mean, we didn't even get to talk to the more like the trauma and the pelvic stuff that, I mean, it shows up a lot there. Maybe mm-hmm. I'll talk about it. I mean, so so I was doing an exam on, it was a new patient and she was, she's young, you know, I think she was 20 something. She came in, um, she came in for frequency, like she had to pee a lot and just discomfort. And we're like trying to figure it out. I'm like, okay. So every patient, you know, new patient, after I talked to them, I said, okay, like, let's get undressed. I'm going to check you just on the outside of like the urethra where you pee out of. Let's make sure there's nothing going on there. We're going to do a, you know, like a quick exam to make sure there's nothing terrible happening. Like, you know, most people actually never examine the genitals, you know, even primaries and, you know, specialists, you've got to like actually look at them. I mean, I know our culture is like, oh my God, but like there's so much important stuff. It's part of your body. And when you don't examine it, like some shameful thing happening there, there's nothing shameful in your genitals. I mean, there are reproductive organs and they're just as important as your arm or your leg and they, they have pathology. So we have to examine. But anyway, I, I'm getting off track. But so I, her, so I examined her. And, and so one of the things I do is like, I feel the muscles in the pelvic floor. They actually carry a lot of trauma there. If we're talking about trauma, they're held usually in the hips or in the pelvic floor, depending on what kind of trauma it is, uh, emotional trauma. But so I'm feeling around and then, and I put, a, I usually put a little catheter to drain their bladder and see that they're not retaining urine. And as soon as I put the catheter, I got this like 
overwhelming like wave sense of of like trauma I just felt this wave of of a trauma and pain and I, it was like it was almost like, like a tsunami cloud block that just like came on top of me and I was like oh, and I was like what just happened and so I was like okay like you know I, I don't know what just happened, but I felt it. And so I told my nurse, you know, just step out, you know, I'm, I need to talk to her. So I came over to my patient. Usually I, I, I let them get dressed, but this was like so palpable that I came up to her, I moved my little um, chair and I, and I moved to her, to her face. And I said, listen, I said, something's gone on here. Like, did you have, tr- like, were you molested? What happened? To, what happened? Cause I feel it. Mm-hmm. And she just started crying and she told me that, yeah, she had been raped and she had never told anybody, like not a therapist, not a mom, not a friend, not a sister, like nobody. And, you know, like that stuff is really powerful. And I could have just kind of been like, okay, whatever, you know, but, but it was really important and it was really part of her healing. And of course I can do her frequency and all this stuff, but that's not the point of what visit. And I think there was like higher purpose for this visit and trying to get her to heal and to say it aloud and to verbalize it and to hold that space that is safe for something that you've never told anybody that happened three years ago. So it is a privilege that she told me that. Yes. It is like sacred. Like, right. Are we talking about healers or teacher? I mean, this is like sacred and you know, that stuff, yeah, it makes my day because I had the privilege to take care of somebody in a very difficult state that took so much courage. I know, I know everybody listening are going to have a couple questions. <laughs> um, was there anything about her body, her presentation, her history that you also noticed that kind of gave you that feeling of intuition? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like, again, it's like a feeling that I get. I feel it. Like, so a little bit, she's talking to me and like, I'm picking up on little cues. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like her, like, there's a little like anxiety. She's moving her hands and like, she's not making great eye contact where she is, but she's a little uncomfortable. You know, just when she's talking about the frequency, I'm like, okay, you know, you're just anxious. Okay, let's figure out. Again, you have a fear. So, mm-hmm. okay, let's just see where this is going. Um but I mean, yeah, I'm talking about, I mean, to me, it was just obvious because when I put the catheter, as soon as I put it in her body, what it did. So she's laying down and her body went like this, like, like she was bracing herself, right? She was bracing herself. And then before she did that, I felt it, but then I saw it on the corner of my eye because I'm behind this little, you know, like you put the little drape thing. So I'm kind of behind it, but I see it on the corner of my eye. She does this thing like she's bracing herself. Mm-hmm. Okay, she's reliving the trauma that when she was raped, right? Even though I'm not really in the vagina, I'm in the urethra, but I'm like, oh God, like something here happened. It was very dark. So, so yeah, of course, you you know all about all this stuff and it's there, but we can easily miss it or just move on or like not care or whatever. And also, you know, we have like five billion patients, so we could just move on. But it was really important. For those of you that that can't see Diana but are listening just to the audio podcast what you see is her, is her body kind of embracing itself and kind of curling inward. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was like this protective mechanism that she was doing with her body when you were just touching, like you said, not even her vagina, right. But her urethra. And I really also appreciate something you said before that a lot of physicians or listeners may not know, which is your pelvic floor carries a lot of trauma. 
so much, so much. Yes. And it doesn't have to be sexual trauma. It's not sexual trauma. Mm-hmm. It is uh, it is just stress. Like we carry in different places. Like sometimes like, you know, after you type a lot in your shoulder, you're like, oh my God, you're moving your shoulders. Like I need a massage. Mm-hmm. Some people carry it and they start getting like reflux or gastritis. And that's where you carry your stress or like, you know, like sometimes it's your whole body. Like when I was in burnout, it was like the whole body was like a bomb. So it was everything. But a lot of people carry in their pelvic floor. And when you do a, actually a, thorough exam and you actually just put your hand in the vagina and feel the pelvic floor muscles. I mean, it feels, you feel the muscle and it feels like a guitar string. It is tight and they will tell you it's painful. And then you're like, Ooh, and it's right there. And then when you ask, <laughs> Hmm, cause they tell me, Oh, this, this started three months ago. And I said, Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, what else happened? Maybe like five months ago, four months ago, like any death illness, you know, uh, money problems, like what else is going on? Right. And then they start crying and tell me, yeah, eight people in my family died and, you know, they have not processed that grief. So they're carrying the grief. Then they tell me how their business is, you know, in a bad place and they're having money issues. So they're carrying that trauma of the business worries there. Then they tell me about this, that, you know, so it's like, yeah, but then they don't realize it's subconscious. They don't know because we have this false belief, like everybody has stress, like, Okay, well, that's actually not your normal state. Your normal human state is to not be a stressful squirrel in the middle of the street, is to be joyful, enthusiastic, happy. That is your normal state. But we think the normal state is being like, like reactive and putting out fires. So they don't know it. Yeah. Like you can make the choice as a physician, right? To just kind of brush by that, right? You have other patients to get to that day. Other people going on and yet you pause and you go up by her face and you say what's going on yeah yeah and I've had and I have a lot I mean I have actually a lot of examples of this I I remember when I was in Miami and I actually wrote an article in Doximity about it about like the the scars are lurking behind the surface um because I don't actually see a lot of women as a urologist actually see most men as a preference because to me I, I prefer that but then you know it really made me think like some of these women that I've seen with trauma, you know, I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to be there for them because in Miami, the same thing happened. One of the patients that came to see me, she came to see me specifically because I was Latina and I'm, you know, I'm Mexican, but my husband's Colombian. So the last name is Colombian. So she was Colombian. She found me, you know, somehow, because there's not a lot in Miami. I think there was two at that time in the whole you know, city. So she came to see me because I was, you know, woman Latina and, you know, again, it's not my passion, but I'm examining her. She's telling me like something's going on. I examine her. I do her pelvic exam. And I was like, I couldn't believe what I had just seen. Mm-hmm. She had genital warts mm-hmm. and like, I mean, probably like hundreds all around the, like the labia, the rectum, like everywhere. I mean, it was like so many genital warts. And I said, mm-hmm. Again, I got this feeling, right? I get this wave of emotion, and I started just crying in the up in the in the in the in the exam room. I like I just got tearing. I said, "Get dressed, I'm coming right back." And I'm like, "What happened?" You know, again, like, "What happened?" Like, tell me. And then again, she told me about being gang raped in Colombia and the shame of like being gang raped and all this stuff because this didn't just happen with like consensual sex. I mean, it could, of course, you know, that you can get general rewards. But this was different and I felt it and now I said, what happened? Right. So 
it was gang rape in Colombia. And, you know, it, it, it was really, it was really like, you know, difficult for me too. And I felt it. I mean, I got the flash of like what happened. I could see the picture. I mean, sometimes I see the picture of what happened and it was really powerful. And then, you know, we did this crazy reconstruct. I mean, I excised all of them. I had to do this reconstruction and it, it actually came up. It was so beautiful. It came out no words after this really complex reconstruction that I did. And I was just so grateful that I had the skills to do that surgically, you know, like I have the surgical skills to do that, to give her the first step in healing. Because every time you wipe, when you're feeling warts, it's like you remember that you've been raped multiple times. So every time you wipe, you're remembering the trauma. So it's not that the trauma went away and there's she has years of healing, of course, like we all do with trauma, but at least she doesn't have to feel it and touch it every single time. So I do some like, had to have sought you out, Diana. She had to have sought you out knowing that this is potentially a safe place, that here's a female physician who I'm I'm going to literally expose myself to yeah. and hope to be healed, to be seen. Yeah, but I think we all hope that when we go to the physician, I mean, I, it's like, you know, we all hope when we go, that is the goal, that they're going to be empathetic and healing and listen. And, you know, when I had, um, I had thyroiditis, like inflammation of the thyroid, um, you know, like seven years ago, a while ago, I mean, like, and I was, I'm very healthy, actually, still, I'm very healthy, except when I was burned out, but I was very healthy. And when I got thyroiditis, and I got diagnosed with it, my colleague who was also, you know, he became my doctor, my endocrinologist, when he told me the diagnosis, I just started crying, like this wave of emotion came on me, and I started crying. I mean, it's not a big deal, it goes away, nothing bad happens. But I was like in shock that I was bawling in his office. And he was like, uh, lady, like, you know, like, okay. But he was so kind and just like, let me cry. Gave me a little tissue even. And just like, let me cry like a crazy lady. And like kindness goes so long, you know, because again, like he and I know, like, it's not a big deal actually. And I know it. Mm-hmm. Well, I kind of did, you know, because that is not my issue, but it's not my my expertise. But I'm like, I kind of know I'm not going to die from that. But I was overwhelmed, and he gave me that safe space. And again, in your, and he's an endocrinologist. I mean, like he's not doing trauma, but like I got triggered, I got emotional, and he was it's able to do that with kindness. Yeah, just space. I mean, so I, I also want physicians and other healthcare providers listening to know that, that sometimes there's something you can do. Like for this woman, you provided her a surgical procedure that helped her healing. For the physician that you saw, he just provided space. Yeah. And I think sometimes when, when people are overwhelmed, like, oh my gosh, like trauma is going to come up. You don't have to do anything sometimes, but just listen, right? I love that. Yeah. We are such a culture of doers and we don't have to be doing anything we just have to be be like a being we're human beings not human doers that really is our first role we're beings i love the person that. in front of us is a being a human being we're a human being we're acknowledging the human being in front of us and we just don't have to do anything you're absolutely right we just have to be there like silence meeting mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I love it. Human beings, not human doers. Yeah. So you mentioned a bit ago with this case that you saw um, that it affects you too. As a oh, physician. Yeah. I'm Wait. not a robot. I cry. I get happy when my patients die. Even my 98 year old patient that died in Miami. I mean, I cry, like when, his, when the daughter called me, I mean, I think I'm talking about my crying episodes, but like, I don't cry all day, but I mean, I love him. 
he was my patient for like four years and I saw him monthly because I had to change his catheter monthly. And when he died, I know he's 98 and all we're all going to die. So I'm not trying to hold the death because I'm going to die if I get run over by the bus. I mean, we're going to die. I'm okay with it. And I don't try to like keep everybody alive. If you're going to die, you're going to die. Like we all get a time. But when he died, I just loved him and I miss him. And I was so like, I, I was crying more. Like when the daughter called me, she was like, oh my God, are you okay? Like she was asking me, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but I, I just miss him. And I miss my patients and I get excited with my patients and I feel their pain. I mean, I don't want to keep it and internalize it, but like, I do feel it. And then like, I let it go and I process it. I don't want to keep their pain. It's for them and their happiness is theirs, but I will celebrate it. And I will be there when there's happiness. And when they tell me about the grandkids and when they tell me about their Corvette 1958 with blue seats, I'm like, Oh my God, I love that car. It's amazing. <laughs> I get excited. You know, it's like seeing 25 friends every day. I'm like, Hey, how are you? What's going on? Like, good morning. So I get excited to see them. Um, you know, and I celebrate their fun stuff. I celebrate the good and I'm there when it's not good, but you know, I do feel it. I'm not a robot. Like I'm not like a drag cracker or cardboard. Like I do have feelings, you know, um, but in medicine, we're taught that we don't, that we have to be like the stoic, like, you know, like mannequin, like, like stiff, like, Oh, who wants to see the mannequin? I don't want to go see a mannequin. I want to see a human. You want to see a human. And and let's segue into this idea that physicians should be stoic, should be, you know, completely boundaried in some ways, right? Um, and that's got to be one of the precipitators to burnout. Of course, because we don't acknowledge we have feelings. We are told we're robots and then robots don't eat, robots don't pee, robots like all this inhumanity in medicine that... We don't need, we don't sleep, we don't pee, we don't do any of it. We no cry, no crying. Don't cry. There's no crying in baseball, whatever. There's no <laughs> crying in medicine. And I'm like, why not? Because how can you not like see the person in front of you that just got the worst news? Like, you don't feel that? Like, really? You don't feel it? How, how are you a better physician? And I'm not saying you have to cry. I'm just saying, like, can you acknowledge, like, oh, I know this is really challenging for you? You know, this seems like, you know, this is our big news. Like, you don't have to cry with it. Nobody's saying cry. But like, if you want to cry, then freaking cry. Like, just be authentic to what it is to be human. That's right. You don't have to cry. Like, it's not about that. It's not about like you falling apart. No, it's just like about acknowledging sometimes this stuff is hard. And we are fed these lies that we have to be the stoic robots. And that is burnout because that is not our true nature as human beings. As like really souls having a human experience. That's really who we are. We're souls having a human experience. And our true nature is to be loving. So loving is an emotion. Empathy is an emotion, compassion. And when you're like like a robot and a mannequin, then we start feeling in ourselves like something is wrong. You don't realize at that moment, but like it starts accumulating, like something is wrong. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Yes. Like that's, that's not how it's supposed to be, but we don't even know what it is because like nobody's told us that. And this is all yes. It's cut off, Diana. Like it's like you have this feeling of like, this isn't right. This doesn't feel right to cut everything. But do you think you're well, just because, okay, because then we go back to our brain? Then we go into the medicine thing, which is like brain, 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 think, 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 think. And okay, that's good. We gotta think. We were, you know, we have to make decisions, but you also have to feel our brain is connected to our heart and to our toes and to like every single body part. So when you are just in your brain, brain, like 
yeah, like your body is telling you like something's wrong. You spiral into burnout because it's a spiritual crisis. Actually, I wrote about that too, but it's a spiritual crisis that you are not identifying that is a connection to your brain, to your thoughts, to your heart. They are connected. When your brain and your heart are connected, I mean, there's a whole thing about heart math and how there's connection to that and how it affects your nervous system when you're heart-centered or you're not heart-centered. When you live with love and heart-centered, your brain responds in different ways. The neurochemicals in your brain are different when you lead with love than when you lead with anger or fear. Like there's different, like, like if you want to get nerdy, I mean, like in the brain, there's different chemical signals and um, hormones are secreted neurotransmitters. So we are connected, but we are told we're not. We're told we're robots. We're told like, you don't need sleep. But the founders of medicine, just to say FYI, because people also don't know this in medicine, the founders of like surgery and these big names like Halstead and all these people, they were like on cocaine, you know, like, let's just keep it how it is real. They were like snorting their cocaine. So that's why they could be up for four days without eating and just like doing a hundred surgeries because they're on cocaine. So unless you're using all like mind altering substances, it is not humanly possible to carry out these expectations that are false to do this work with like no sleep, no food, not being able to pee or poop or do anything that is like a human, like biological thing. It's just impossible. What do you say to your colleagues? Um, because I, I meet with a lot of healthcare organizations and, and physicians who would say, okay, I get it. I, I should be more whole bodied. I should pay attention. But like, if I felt all the feelings all day long and I'm losing patience or like, yeah. I would be a mess. Like I, you wouldn't be a mess. That's a thought you want to choose to think you wouldn't be a mess. You would be human. You're choosing to say you're going to be a mess. So if you choose to think you're going to be a mess, that will be your reality. So you choose to say, I'll be a mess. That's exactly what you're going to be. You're going to be a mess. I choose to say I'm human and I'm going to embody being human. So the thoughts and the words that we say, it's exactly, I mean, this is coaching one-on-one. Your thoughts become your feelings. The feelings become your actions and your results. You manifest what you think. So if you think you're a failure, you're going to be a failure. If you think you're fat and ugly, you're going to be fat and ugly. If you think you're awesome, you're going to be awesome. So Choose so if you're thinking, body. I'm going to be a mess. I'm not going to make it through my clinical day. Sure, I don't have the skills to deal with this kind no, of. You don't have skills, absolutely. You're not going to. They're not going to appear magically because mm-hmm. if you're talking about what you don't want, that actually brings it to you. If you don't, you know, like, oh, I don't want to be that. That actually manifests back to it's like worry. You're praying for what you don't want. Uh-huh. So if, if you want to say what you don't want, you're going to get exactly that and more of it. Why don't you actually tell me what you do want? Mm-hmm. Tell me what you want. I want to be empathetic. I want to try to listen. Then you're going to be, be doing those things during the clinic. I so, want to pay attention to what's happening in my body as a physician also. Yeah, you're not a mess. That is a false. That is a thought. And that is an option. But again, it's a choice you made to say that's what's going to happen. Choose a different mm-hmm. thought and your results will be different. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah, that's what I say. (laughs) How how did you get interested in these intersections of the field between the medicine that you practice, 
coaching and being more of a whole human being self. How did you get interested in all this? Yeah, I mean, I think when I went into medicine, I went to medicine because I thought, you know, illness, wellness, disease, like there's a big part of humanity and dignity that has to be part of it. My dad, when he died, I mean, he had metastatic prostate cancer. He's, you know, he was in Mexico and he's very good looking man, like blue eyes for Mexican, you know, like, it's like, whoa, like blue eyes, just, you know, good looking man. And when he was, you know, dying, paralyzed in diapers, you know, it was so important to him that, you know, he wants to comb his hair and put on his cologne and look good and have the dignity that is taken away when you're at the hospital, right? Like you don't have your makeup, you don't have your cologne, you have some ugly gown that shows your butt, you know, it's like undignified. So when I saw like my dad in that condition to me, I thought this is important. We There's a component of dignity and illness and, you know, health and wellness. Because when I go to the hospital and I see patients with their you know, ugly gowns that are not attractive and just strip them of all this stuff, right? Like their makeup, stuff that kind of makes them feel who they, you know, like better about themselves and things like that. When you see them in the office, you're like, oh my God, who are you? Like, you look so different because you have your makeup and your perfume and your cologne and your individual, yeah, individual, like, you know, the stuff. And, and so I I thought like, I want to bring that to medicine. I want to make sure that that's talked about or is important or is highlighted because I think people miss it sometimes you know I just I didn't really think about medicine but I, I just had the sense that like it wasn't always there so mm-hmm. when I went to medicine I'm like yeah I'm here for the like humans and the connection and I'm like talking about like this cool stuff and you know there was some of it I mean there definitely was some of it at UCLA we had a doctoring class where we learned how to like learn these skills with actors so I do think there was a huge part of that that was amazing but then there was just a lot more of like you know, like technician and prescriber and like technical stuff, which is important. We got to do, but then we got to put a little humanity, a little like spice, a little personality into medicine. Like, can we infuse medicine with a little personality and like a little pizzazz and like a little fun? Like it doesn't have to be so dry and boring, like dread. Like it really does not. You know, I mean, I get danced with my staff on Thursdays. I mean, I did it really with COVID because we were, you know, I was in a terrible place, but you know, we dance on Thursdays and the opera room, I dance with my staff because like, it's joyful. And that's actually who I am. I like, I'm always kind of moving. I'm always like doing something. So I'm like, why am I not going to bring that to where I am? Because that is me. I'm like jumping and dancing and moving. And that is me. That is my joyful self. I'm going to bring it everywhere. And mm-hmm. people love it. Like people, if I don't do it on Thursdays, my staff will be like, Dr. Lodonio, where are you? How come you're not doing it? I'm like, Oh, because I got a fairly, I don't want to go home and see my kids, you know, but, but they're like, oh, I can't believe it's like this a week, you know, so they like really, I mean, they love it and it brings joy, you know, and like, it takes like three minutes, three minutes to like do one song. You know? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, there, there's a book about burnout by um, the Nagoski twins. And one thing they say is to do something that brings you joy so that the emotions can work through you. Oh, yeah. Through your body and dance. Is oh, yeah. Happy, right? That it, so I love, and, and I love, I hope everybody who's listening is hearing this, which is three minutes. It might take three minutes of dancing and being joyful to work through really crappy feelings that you had from the morning. Yeah, and there's a there's an amazing, your trauma, so this is up your alley, of course, the Center for um, Mind and Body Medicine, 
They have an amazing, we actually do it with my staff. So they have an amazing video, which is like, I think it's called shaking and dancing or shaking and moving, which we, it's like a meditation, a movement meditation. And it really is about three minutes and it's so fun. It's amazing. You literally are shaking and moving your whole body to move all the stress out of your body and like shake it off. Because like, if you've seen dogs, when they get in a fight, they like, they fight with the other dog. And as soon as they fight, they like shake off their body and they move along. They're mm-hmm. shaking the energy away. So it actually works for humans too, not just dogs. So when you're in a charged situation, maybe you're picking up all this energy that, you know, you didn't learn to protect and not pick up as an empathic, you know, mm-hmm. physician or healer, wherever you are, then shake it off. And movement and dancing is a great way to do it. And it literally takes three minutes. And so that dance there is amazing. Again, my staff always ask for it. They're like, can we do that one? I'm like, okay, let's do it because it's fun. And when we really need to get the stress off, because the front checking people, that's a lot of stress. You know, people are maybe really nice to me, but they turn around, they're really rude to my staff, which is like no go. Like that stuff does not fly if I hear about it. But, you know, they get like sometimes not the nicest people and they're like mad and this and that and blah, 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 blah. So, so it's a lot of stress. And so we do it so that we got to let release this, like release this negativity, like do the negativity sweep and get it off of us. Cause it's not for us. It's for everybody else to keep. It's not for us. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to, I'll link up to that uh, site on the show notes. Yeah. It's amazing. It's a great uh, resource. Um, the book is really good. Sorry. There's a book. He wrote a book, uh, Dr. Gordon, a great book. Amazing book. Yeah. Really good perfect. Book. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, okay, so we just have a few minutes left. This has been an amazing conversation. Um, with all of my guests, we do like a little bit of rapid fire at the end. Are you ready? <laughs> We're gonna see this. One. You can tell by your energy, you're 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 ready for this. Okay. So the first question is: What is one thing that you think people get wrong about physicians? That we're boring. <laughs> boring you are not boring <laughs> well some of them are but like not all of us you know like we actually have a lot of interest you know but people feel like they have to stay in their little like protective like glass you know no like, like let loose a little bit you're not gonna explode it's fun like be you you know people have a lot of interest and they just feel like they have to like act a certain way I'm like no like do whatever you want to do man. but like in a loving way <laughs> right when we were talking about the bio at the beginning you said well that's my job that I do during the day but I'm also a mom and a wife and a right all these things all these other roles that you carry mm-hmm. um if you had to go back and talk to young Dr. Londonio oh, yeah. so yesterday he's good I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah I was just kidding so what, what am I telling young Dr. Londonio what am I telling what him? advice would you give your younger self my advice would be, you know, like keep laughing and keep moving. Like that will probably keep you young, you know, like just keep laughing, keep moving. That's really important. Cause I did lose that in burnout. I had a laugh like in a year and a half. And I actually make a lot of jokes all the time with my patients or with people. And I really hadn't laughed in a long time. And the day that I laughed, I was like, it was like weird. I was like, what? Like, what? <laughs> like, where did you come from laughter? Because it had been so long. Mm-hmm. So I think that's so important to reconnect to laughter. It is the best medicine and really just movement, movement, because it's movement of everything, body, mind, thoughts, actions. I mean, like keep moving. Stagnation leads to disease. It is a disease. And, you know, as a urologist, you know, if you don't pee and like the, the urine doesn't come out, believe me, it causes pain and it causes infections and disease is the problem. So just like your friend in the urologist, I mean, like you gotta keep everything moving, whether it's your pee, your mind, your thoughts, your ideas, like your creativity, keep moving. Movement is where you get transformation and like transformation that, you know, leads to like 
you know, hopefully a revolution, a good revolution. So I love it. I love it. Um, Often in healthcare, I think if you're a patient listening even, or another professional, people get intimidated by physicians, right? Um, What's one thing that makes you perfectly imperfect as a human? That I acknowledge that you know, like, I don't know everything. I don't come in with the ego. And I just had, a, I mean, we're wrapping up, but we had a patient recently that came in and told me kind of like the same thing. She was intimidated. She's like, well, I went to the other doctor and, you know, I just didn't know what to say because I wanted to respect them, but I felt something was wrong and it was wrong. And I told her, like, I said, listen, I mean, I was kind of getting a little fiery, but I said, listen, you know, what's right. You know, more than me and anybody else. And that guy and, and that physician, you know, and you felt it again, your intuition, you felt something was wrong. You felt it wasn't right. So it doesn't matter who you are, whether it's me, you're talking to as a physician or like, again, the McDonald's lady, if you feel something is wrong, you got to own it. And you were right. It was wrong. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to own that and don't ever not trust your intuition again. And like, actually, she got really tears. She's like, Oh my God, like I want to cry because you, I mean, I, I acknowledge and I give permission to like, yeah, you were right. I don't know more than you. You oh. know more than I do. And, you know, it, it, like that, that was important for her. And it was important for me because she, it's true. And so like, I don't know more than you, but physicians always come in with the ego, right? Like, oh, I'm the expert and I know more than you. And like, I've done all this research and, you know, like I never have a complication. Okay, that's false. So I don't, I don't ever show up like that because that's not who I am. I'm not any more knowledgeable than like my cleaning lady. I mean, I really like, we have different skills and I appreciate my cleaning lady. Without her, this house would not be as fantastically clean as it is. I love her. Yes. She makes my life so much more magical and yes. we just have different skills. I'm not better than her. There's like, there's nothing better just because I spend years getting like expensive artwork, which are those diplomas. <laughs> it's not, I mean, that really is a reality. And I treat her the same as I do when I talk to CEOs. And I don't treat them any better and I don't treat her any less. They get exactly the same. And in like the same way I treat my patient, like, yeah, I don't know everything. And like, if I told you I did, that would be a lie. Yeah. That is a gift. And that what you just said, I don't know more about you than you know about you is incredible. Um, Okay. This is a fun one. It's 11 o'clock at night and you have a food craving. What do you reach for? Yeah, I mean, my favorite food is popcorn and it is like my comfort food. So I will have popcorn with chili and lime because I'm Mexican. So we put lime on everything, but that's what I do. But that is my comfort food. Although I have let it go a little bit because now I don't go for food. I actually, because, you know, we buffer with things and food. So yeah. when I'm feeling a little something, the craving is not about actual food. It's about something else emotionally. So I'm like, hmm, what's going on? I don't need my popcorn or my five pounds of candy I used to like, you know, eat. Now I need to like be mindful and do something different and acknowledge my anxiety and sit with it and be like, hmm, I'm a little anxious. Okay, that's what's going on. Hmm, I have things to do. So I actually don't reach for it anymore, but I used to, you know, uh, I would do that. But now I'm like, no, I don't problem. I don't need the comfort food. That's awesome. So, and I want everybody to know that, right? Like on our best game days, um, we tune into ourselves. We become mindful on our days where we're just being human beings, right? We reach for the popcorn and put chili and lime on it. It's all good. Um, last thing is if people want to learn more about you, um, uh, where's the best place to find you? Yeah. So my website is www. My name, Diana Londono, MD, like medicaldoctor.com. There's all my podcast interviews I've done. Like I write a lot. So there's my writings, there's 
um, things, information about things I'm passionate about, which is what we talked about at the beginning. I found a physiciancoastreport.com, which is a free and confidential platform for physicians uh, that are, you know, peers are there, they're volunteers. This is all physicians, volunteers who are life coaches are there just to support you. So it talks about that, but you can also just go to that website to learn more about that, make a free confidential appointment via Zoom. Um, but, you know, my website is the easiest. I'm also on LinkedIn, Diana Londoño. I am on Twitter, same name, Diana Londoño. Instagram, I just got on that train. So now I'm moving for wellness. Since I move all day, I'm like, well, might as well just put it there because I'm doing this all day. So, um, you know, if you want something more lighthearted, that's that. But if you want more the substance and the staff articles, you know, I mean, pick your, pick your, the tea that you like to drink, you know, but anywhere, I, if this stuff is, you know, meaningful, important, I definitely would love to connect. I can do these conversations all day. So much fun. It really fills my cup to have like these deep, important conversations. I mean, this is why I went to medicine, you know, to, to, I guess, have the credibility that I can have these conversations. I mean, like, that's the only reason why I'm a physician. So I can do these conversations and, that, that's the only reason. Otherwise, you know, I mean, it's important to have the diplomas, but I think I'm, I probably wanted a Matisse instead. No, I'm kidding. No, but, you know, like this stuff really fills my soul and I really appreciate the conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much. You are a breath of fresh air. Your energy is contagious. Um, I knew we would be kindred spirits when I saw you had the same quote on one of your sites that I have, which is be the change you want to see in this world. Um, you put good energy out there and what you do for your patients as a physician is healing and transformative. And thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate you. Oh, no, thank you. I mean, what you're doing is like, we need more of you talking about it, normalizing it, making it accessible. That is now some big pill. You can take little, little steps and get there and it doesn't have to be intimidating, but again, how you think about it, am I going to be a mess? Yeah, you will be. Or are you going to just be an amazing physician? So mm-hmm. just how you think about it is going to transform what your results are. So uh, again, I just appreciate so much what you do. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Well, that's it, friends. If you like what you're hearing in this space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a learning collaborative to build resilience. It's an incredible group of physicians who meet monthly, get CME, and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience, and other tough topics. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you. And keep sharing your own, because your humanity will heal others. We'll talk soon.